tonight. If you have a Bible, we're in Acts 9 this evening. Uh, really a quintessential um, moment for the church, uh, a monumental chapter in the Bible that we'll talk about tonight. Um, everybody here knows what chapter 9 of Acts is all about. I don't have to really uh, do much of introduction to talk about what is ahead of us. Uh, most of us have heard this preached and heard this um, kind of dramatized in, in a way that can apply to our own stories. And maybe you have a story that's similar to the one that's in this chapter, regardless, uh, or if you don't have that similar story about coming to Christ, this is a story that can be experienced by anyone who may be far away from God. Um, but uh, I think think we're going to really enjoy this evening and talk about um, just what kind of a miracle takes place in Acts 9. Now we've began a new section in Acts, a new phase of the church's expansion. Uh, we've chronicled uh, the beginning uh, so far. We've looked at the boom and the boldness of the church. Uh, we've looked at the breakout um, of the church as it expanded uh, there uh, through the, the outreach of Stephen and the ministry of the deacons. And, and now we are looking at the church move beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, as they set their sights on the rest of the world. Uh, it might seem like a lofty aspiration, but Jesus told them that you're going to take this gospel uh, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and this was their destiny. Uh, this was what they were born to do and what God was enabling them to do, God willing them to do. And, and we get a taste of it in Acts 8 as they go to Samaria. They go um, down the road toward Ethiopia. So we see them beginning to go um, towards the ends of the earth. Also, uh, uh, you know, cool, cool um, thing to mention is uh, Ethiopia, the road to Ethiopia. I didn't mention this last week, but the road to Ethiopia that uh, Luke tells us is the desert uh, from Gaza down to Africa. Um, that was no man's land. It was, you know, a place that nobody went to. It was a road that you wanted to be leaving. It didn't, it wasn't a road that you wanted to be taking. Um, often this road and the land of Ethiopia was called the ends of the earth. Um, so in a uh, metaphorical way, the church got to the ends of the earth um, in Acts 8, but we know that God was talking literally, um, that they were going to go to the ends, the corners of the earth. Uh, of course, uh, no one knew that we, or we weren't here, but our territory was here. No one knew that uh, America was even on the planet uh, back in those days. Of course, God did and God had plans to bring the gospel on this side of the globe. So God means what he says. Uh, and I, I think we need to pay attention to when he says things because he's, he doesn't say them uh, just, to, to, just to be um, flowery. Uh, he meant into the earth and he was going to get there. Um, of course, fueling this move beyond boundaries was an outbreak of persecution, uh, which we see ramp up its game as the church goes beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea. So does the movement of persecution uh, sanctioned by uh, the, the, the government of Jerusalem and, and, and fueled and supported by Rome. Uh, so as the gospel began to move, so did the persecution of the church uh, begin to chase them down. Acts 8 ends with Philip continuing his work of evangelism, and Acts 9 begins with a reminder that the church has a single villain, uh, a single individual who is spearheading much of this persecution. He is the one that um, kind of planned and, 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 and went to work uh, to hunt down Christians and bring them before the council and have them killed. Now that man is none other than Saul of Tarsus, a member of the council. We'll talk about what that means and how that role kind of evolved. Uh, but Saul of Tarsus was leading the attack on the church. So as the church began to move beyond boundaries, so did Saul and his work against it. Acts 9 verse 1 and 2 tells us, I love the language, just the, 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 the way it's uh, described to us in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing out or breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. 
So Saul says, hey, they're moving beyond Jerusalem. It's not just a local thing anymore. They're moving, so we got to move too. We need, I need more men. I need more soldiers. I need more people that are willing to do things that no one else would do. I need people willing to, uh, you know, to, to kill first and, and ask questions later. I need people that will go with me. I need to mobilize this movement because it's not just local anymore. This thing's becoming a national movement. It'll be global before we know it. So Saul goes to the high priest and demands uh, that he get some help and that the team begin to, to, to multiply. Verse 2 says he asks letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So they, uh, the, 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 the temple had jurisdiction over the synagogues that were scattered around uh, not just Judea, but around the world. Uh, when the Jews were dispersed um, through Babylon and through Persia, uh, they would establish synagogues in the new territories that they made their homes because many of them did not come back to Judea under Nehemiah and Ezra. So the synagogues were these sort of temples away from home, temples away from the temple, uh, much like the church would be, or the church is. Uh, these synagogues were these little um, communities that would gather together in the town, spread across the Mediterranean Sea, spread across the Middle East and around the Greek and Roman areas. Uh, so these synagogues, though, they, they weren't autonomous. They answered to the temple. They answered to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had jurisdiction over the synagogues, and they had the authority. Rome gave the temple the authority to go in and basically exercise their you know, dominion in these synagogues no matter whether they were in Jerusalem or Judea or not. So that's why Saul is saying, hey, I need letters. So when I walk to Damascus, that the people of Damascus know I come from the temple. I come from the Sanhedrin. I'm here to do business because there are some people in the synagogue that have dissented from Judaism and that have placed their faith in Jesus. And they're trying to do some work in the synagogue to take other Jews with them. So that's why he went to the synagogue, because even the Jews that converted to Christianity were still meeting there because they still read the same Bible and they were trying to lead their brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith to Jesus, because again, this was predominantly a Jewish movement at this time still. So Saul asked for letters from them uh, to, to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, and of course, have them put to death. So we see that the church has expanded and so too has persecution expanded. We've talked about this so far, but I think it's worth reiterating. Satan will persist as God's people push beyond perceived limits. Now, we know that Satan is relentless. He's going to punch it. You know, we take a step. He's going to take another step to combat us. But when he sees God's people realize that, you know what? These limits aren't on us. We, we're not stuck in one place. We're not stuck in this same area. Uh, Stephen's whole message that, hey, God is bigger than just this area. He's bigger than the temple. You, wait, you watch and see. You spread us out from this city, and we're just going to make the whole earth full of the glory of God and full of churches. And that's what they were going to do. You see, Satan will persist as God's people push beyond the limits limits that we often perceive and assume are over us. Uh, he's angry that we've not been intimidated. So you can bet that as we push beyond limits, Satan will persist in his attack. But God's promises are more powerful and more persistent through us. Isn't it true? That often we encounter resistance and we feel less bold and bullish about God's promises because of that resistance. This is the, the you know, happens all the time. That we're bold, we're brash, we're bullish, we're ready to go. God's going to be with us, nothing can stop us. The enemy, you know, meets us, half, meets us before we even get out the door and we push back, we step back a little bit, don't we? That we are ready to take on hell, you know, without any fear, right? We're ready to go against the enemy and go against his movement and preach the gospel no matter what. But we take two steps out the door and he meets us, he intimidates us, he, he overbears uh, us, and we feel like that all of a sudden we lose that boldness, don't we? 
We lose that zeal. We lose that energy. And that's his tactic over and over again. But we must remember, and as we encounter these challenges, and we will, what we've got to remember is that God's promises are full and final. That yes, the enemy may have ramped up his movement. Yes, he may have turned the heat up, you know, seven times like Nebuchadnezzar did or six times like Nebuchadnezzar did. The enemy may come against us with more of an onslaught, but God's promises have not moved. They have not wavered. God does not tremble. His promises do not stumble. So they don't worry even though the enemy ramps up his attack. And I think that we often, as Christians, we think we know God's promises are only as powerful and persistent as we feel like they are. But where's our power come from? How we feel or what God says? I think we know the answer to that. See, we do, we do all those things. Our emotions will cause us to downplay and underestimate God's promises. God doesn't waver, but we do, don't we? God does not budge, but we do. God does not tremble, but we do. God does not worry, but we do. But I got to tell you, we've got to stop right there. When we begin to give up, we begin to grow weary. When we begin to doubt, we got to stop right there and remind ourselves and be reminded by God's word that God's promises are more powerful and more persistent than the enemy is. Second Corinthians chapter one, this is what the Bible tells us. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. As in Jesus doesn't waver. He doesn't say, well, maybe I'll be there, or maybe my word will be true, or yes, it's going to be true unless it's rainy, or yes, it's going to be true unless they're in charge, or yes, it's going to be true unless the you know, circumstances are not stacking up. And isn't it, isn't it true that this describes us so much, doesn't it? That yes, we're ready to go for the glory of God, but if something's not right, well, God's word is right, but you know what? It just doesn't feel right right now. But Paul, the, the, the scripture says, God's word, God's promises are not yes and no. They're not maybe. What's it say? In him it's always yes. As in God's promises that he's made to us, they don't change. Always. For all the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in him. As in Jesus has made it forever settled in heaven that God is for us. His promises are true, powerful, and persistent. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen. You know what that means? That means, hey, I agree. So what is this text trying to tell us? Do you agree, or it's trying to ask us, do you agree that God is more powerful and his word is more persistent through us than the enemy is in his attacks? Now that ought to be, better be an amen from all of us, but it isn't, is it? The scripture goes on and says, it is God who establishes us with you that's together as a church, has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So you can't get more, you know, ironed out and confirmed than that, can you? Established, anointed, sealed, guaranteed. So as long as the church is willing to go beyond our comfort, as long as we're willing to go beyond what's convenient, as long as we're willing to put more stock in what God has said than what the enemy says, as long as we're putting more confidence in God than ourselves, we can trust that God's promises will allow us to accomplish his will and spread his gospel. Now, you know, it worked for the New Testament church. It will work for us. You know, may it be said about us like it was about Abraham, Romans 4. I love this scripture. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that, that last line there in yellow. Convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You know what the story of Abraham is really all about? It's about making a point about how when we are unable, God is all the more able. Why did God pick a man in his 70s, change his name, wander him around in circles for 30 years, not, not give him a child until he was 100? Why did God do that? To show us who is the one making things happen. It wasn't Abraham, but God was able to do what he had promised. We need to go to God with this sort of confidence. All the more when the enemy comes at us with aggression. Do you believe that God is able? I think what sets us apart from the early church is that we put limits on God. I'm not saying y'all do, but we do. We rationalize, we compromise, we walk back, but not the church in Acts. They walked forward beyond boundaries towards the ends of the earth. We've seen how the gospel can reach people regardless of their location. We saw last week the gospel is able to reach people beyond barriers this world or religion imposes on them with the eunuch who had been told there was no place for him. And tonight, tonight we are going to see something amazing. We're going to see the gospel break more barriers, maybe the greatest barrier of them all, the human will. Not the barrier maybe we're expecting but the barrier that we all possess that resists God entirely. But if God can knock this wall down, there's nothing that can stand in his way. Now I want to talk about the issue of the human will, but because I can't stress enough that what happens in Acts 9 is proof of both our will's captivity, captivity to what? We'll talk about it. Our will's captivity and the gospel's ability. Now, this chapter might expose my theology a little bit more than many of you might be comfortable with, but I stand by what I'm going to tell you tonight because I believe God's word is so true and clear on this. You might not agree with me on every little detail, but I want to make very clear the obstacle that exists within us that can only be overcome by the power of the gospel, by the power of God. First, though, why is our will an obstacle? Maybe that's your question. Don't we have a free will? Well, humanity was created with a free will. God gave Adam and Eve a choice, a choice to choose him or choose the world, and they chose sin. And that sealed the deal for every human sense. Now, we still have choices, of course, but in terms of our will, in terms of our instinct, our nature, because of the fall, our wills are bent towards sin, as in leaning towards, as in you put the marble on the ground, it's going to roll that way. Our wills are bent towards sin, inclined towards sin. We naturally choose sin, given the option, and we have an option, given the option, we choose sin a hundred times. In our flesh, we are bound, that's a heavy word, but it's true, we are bound by and in sin. That makes you feel real good, doesn't it? It gets better. The human will is stubborn. Now, you say this about your spouse, but not about you, but they would say it about you if you were talking to them. You say this about your children. They say it about you sometimes, but hopefully not. That's rude. The human will is stubborn in 
its ways. It's naturally afraid. It's selfish. It's defensive. And it's deceptive. Yet, when met with the power of God, the mercy of God, our depraved and uncooperative minds are given a way out. The decision isn't made for us. But when met with the power of God, our depraved, uncooperative minds are given a way out. And in fact, this is the only way out. The only way out. Jesus said this in John chapter 6. No one, let's say that together. No one, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's dealing with this crowd that's, you know, they're, they're in there for the food, they're in there for the fame, they're in there for the fortune. And Jesus starts talking about their hearts. And they don't want to hear that because they don't think their hearts are anything wrong. And Jesus says, I got to tell you all about your hearts because you think you're picking and choosing and you're here for me and you're rah, rah, we're going to make, you know, we're going to make you king. He said, let me just tell you all about your condition. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now this word draw, big deal here. This word draw literally means drag. Literally means that you're dead in a tomb, and unless the stone is rolled away and your corpse is drug out, you're not coming. That tells me, and that should tell us, what kind of condition our, our wills are in. What it means to be sinful. What it means to, be, to have a nature of sin, an inclination towards sin. Romans 3.11 says that no one seeks out God. No, not one. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked desperately. No one comes to the Father unless we are drugged by him. Think about how the Bible describes the exodus, the people of Israel. Because it's similar to what Jesus just said there. Jeremiah 31, 32, God is talking about the exodus story. When I took them by the hand... To bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now think about this. If you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh oppressing you, things are not going good. All of a sudden, God raises up a savior, says, hey, come out with me. Parts the Red Sea, says, hey, come on. Wouldn't you think that you would run across the water, run across the dry land? Why wouldn't you? But God, in his description of the heart of people, says, I had to take those rascals by the hand and drag them out. Because they were so uncooperative. They didn't want to. When they were standing at the brink of the Red Sea crossing, they were contemplating going back. Remember that? And when they got across the water and it was sealed up and Pharaoh had been drowned, they began to murmur because Moses didn't give them enough bread. They wanted to go back still. That's what our nature would do. It would soon try to cross the Red Sea again and drown in the process and follow God. I know this might be a little, I don't know if we, I really believe that about myself, but I believe this about me. I don't believe, you know, I, I wish it wasn't true about y'all, but if it's about, true about me, it's true about you. Let's just agree on that, right? I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You know, God told Moses when Moses was complaining, God said, Moses, you are dealing with a stiff-necked people, an uncircumcised at heart people. He said, I didn't choose y'all because y'all were awesome. I chose you because I was awesome and y'all would make me look even more awesome because you're so you know, obstinate. Now, you would think 
He drug them by the hand. Okay, eventually they're going to start walking, aren't they? No, look at what Deuteronomy says. In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. So he was dragging by the hand. Lindsay was walking the dog, the little puppy Wally today. She calls me from up the road at my mom and dad's that uh, he had sat down in the driveway. He wasn't going to walk anymore. He was done walking because he got tired. And she would carry him, but then she was too tired to walk home, so I had to go get her in the truck. Now, this is a whole double, this is double the meaning, right? We as a people, when we have been drugged by the hand, eventually we are so stubborn in our sin, and, and stubborn is not the right word, we're so bound by our sin, we will soon sit down and not budge even when a Savior is saying, I'm here for you. Now, that might confirm some things about you to yourself that maybe you don't want to admit it's true, but maybe it makes you feel better about yourself because, hey, maybe it's not all my fault. still your fault, but, you know. God had to carry them because they wouldn't cooperate with him. This is what we're dealing with in our hearts. Don't ever underestimate what's inside of your heart. I know that's great to hear, but it gets better, I promise. But also, I don't want you to underestimate. Here's the good side of the coin. Don't ever underestimate that God is our only hope. Now, look at how good he was to Israel. He drug them by the hand. He carried them. Why was he doing this? Because he loved them. So, yeah, our hearts are messed up and our hearts are sinful and our, heart, our, our nature is, is, is you know, contrary to what is, that makes sense. But we got a God who is trying desperately to get us out of that mess without condemning us. So don't underestimate how God is great and powerful and how much hope he gives us. Here's what Jesus said to the Jews in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's trying to make a point to them. He says, you know, everybody, all y'all want to say you're religious and you sin a little bit and he sins a lot. He said, let me just make this very easy for all of you. If you've sinned, if you've ever practiced sin, as in if you sin, you're a slave to it. Oh, no, I'm not a slave to sin. I might mess up every once in a while. I'm not a slave. That makes me look bad, Jesus. He says, no, you're a slave. But here's the good news. So the bad news is you're a slave to sin. Can't get out of it on your own. Good news is if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, as in absolutely your life will change. So the bad news is you're, you're stuck in your sin. Your nature is sinful and it's, and it's depraved even. Good news is Jesus is here to set you free. So if he sets you free, you will by all means be free indeed. Just as God freed the Hebrews from bondage, that is the gospel that God can free us from the bondage of our wills. But it takes God to set us free. No matter how bound by sin, obstinate in our flesh, confounded in ignorance, the gospel has the power to break us free from our sin-captive will. This is the good news. Yes, we're bound by sin. Yes, we're stubborn in our flesh. Yes, we don't know and aren't able to figure it out on our own. But the gospel alone has the power to break you free and set you free from your sin-captive will. So this is what we witness in Acts 9. The ultimate example of the power of the gospel, meeting the power of sin, the bondage of flesh, exerting its supremacy. What happens in Acts 9 is nothing short of a miracle on par with Acts 2, when everyone speaks this language that is heard by the people in their own tongue, that's a miracle, but this is on par with that, maybe better, better than that. 
What happens in Acts 9 is on par with the miracle in Acts 3 when a lame man cannot walk from birth and gets up and walks again. What happens in Acts 9 is on par with Peter's shadow healing people in Acts 5 and the jail doors opening for the disciples to walk out in Acts 5. What happens in Acts Acts 9 might be greater than all four of the major miracles we've seen so far in Acts. I can't emphasize this enough. What happens in Acts 9 as a result of Acts 9, may be a bigger deal and more consequential than anything else in the New Testament other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's pretty big, isn't it? That what happens in this chapter to the person that it happens to is maybe a bigger deal consequentially than anything that happens anywhere else in the Bible even. Now, that might be a little too much hype for your taste, but I choose to believe the hype. I think we should marvel at what happens as God's power meets the sin captive will. Now to set this up, I want to go back and look at a few verses that Luke drip feeds us. He gives us information along the way that teases out this bigger story that no one could have saw how it was going to wrap up. Throughout the gospel and here in Acts, we see the reference to the council, which is the Jewish Sanhedrin, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, this governing body uh, has ties back to Moses uh, that Rome allowed to remain in place to handle the religious matters, to, to, to uh, leverage the law and keep everybody in line with the Jewish religion. Uh, we see the disciples face this council again and again. They faced it in Acts 4, Acts 5. Um, Stephen faced it in Acts 7. Uh, the same council that sentenced Jesus to death with Pilate's approval, this is what's going on in Acts chapter uh, in Acts from chapter 5 uh, through through 9. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin, as it's called, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, is uh, comprised of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were the two religious parties of the Jewish traditions. Uh, the Pharisees were uh, the more conservative, if you want to use that phrase, but not like political. Uh, they were the more, uh, you know, more literal text-believing, interpreting uh, people of the bunch. Uh, they were very extreme in their ways of observing the law. They were very radical about uh, adhering the Jewish traditions and, and, and making making sure they did everything as the Jewish tradition told them to. Pharisees believed it was their calling to do as much good as they could because they believed if anybody was going to get God's attention, it was going to be them. So if you ask a Pharisee, hey, what do you get paid to do? They would say, well, I get paid to be good. Well, how good? I'm going to try to be as good as I can because I'm trying to move God's heart to do something good for us. So the Pharisees, uh, they were the ones who were so radical about protecting their customs, they convinced the whole council uh, that something had to be done about Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He was a member of the ruling council. He was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was part of this group that the Pharisees said, hey, we got to do something about this guy. He's going to take us down. He's going to ruin our movement. He's going to, Rome's going to come in and get rid of all of us because of association with him. So in, in John 3, John 7, John 11, you see this Pharisee group grow and grow and grow until they eventually in John 11, they convince the majority of the council to go to Rome and say, hey, we need to kill this guy. So in, in, in John 18, they go to Pilate and they say, hey, we can't keep this guy alive. He's dangerous. You need to kill him. And of course they do. Uh, that's why you read in the Gospels, the Pharisees were always trying to catch Jesus in some contradiction, uh, that they were trying to pin him with charges. Uh, the same blind zeal is what drove the Pharisees in Acts. Uh, it was their fervor that convinced Rome to approve, sanction, sponsor persecution around this time of Acts 7, which is what resulted in Stephen's death. Now, if you look back over in Acts 7, at the end of it, verse 58, um, uh, Luke introduces us to the leader of this uh, movement, most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, um, a Pharisee, we're, we're told later on. Uh, this individual is the one who led this attack against Stephen and successfully put him to death. So Acts 7, verse 58 says, They cast him out, Stephen, of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul. Later on in verse 
chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was consenting to his death, and at the time, he led this great persecution that uh, spread around the church. And, and now we're told again that Saul, as the church begins to move beyond its boundaries, Saul is moving beyond his boundaries. But y'all know Saul. And we know Saul not as the murderer. We know Saul by his uh, Greek, his, his uh, Gentile name, Paul. And Acts 9 is the story of how Saul of Tarsus goes from opponent of the church to advocate for the church, the greatest advocate that has ever lived. Acts 9 is the story of how an enemy becomes an evangelist. But as Acts 9 verses 1 and 2 open up, it, says, it, it makes it very clear, Saul has zero interest in being anything but a threat and a terror to the church. I mean, just, you know, breathing out threats and murder does not sound like you know, I'm considering joining the church. Well, what are you into lately? Well, I'm killing people, and I'm breathing out threats to people, and I'm hunting down Christians, but you know what? I'm open to it. I mean, who would? No, no you, that, that's a joke, right? I mean, the reason why I went on that big rant about, not rant, but that big feel about the, the bondage of the will is because if there's anybody that was bound by sin, it's this guy. Breathing out threats, murdering people, binding them up and bringing them to, to the prisons. Saul had zero interest in being anything but a thorn in the church's side. If it was up to him, he was going to end it. But God had different plans for Saul of Tarsus. Saul's breathing out threats, completely overtaken by his irrational hatred for Christianity, how it threatens his tradition, goes against what his religion taught. Even though Jesus and the church had proven that Christianity was the true realization of Judaism, Saul was spellbound in his flesh. He was bound by his sinful will. And I think Luke wants us to see how Saul's conversion is the ultimate proof of God's power to knock down the greatest barrier, the resistance that our flesh puts up to anything that has to do with God. I think you can agree with me on that once we get this over with, that Luke wants us to say that nothing can stand in the way of the gospel, even the bondage that our wills are in, can be overcome by the power of the gospel, only the gospel. Verse 3, it says, as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, in case you wonder where it was coming from. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're not persecuting a movement. You're persecuting a people, a person, and it's me and my people. And instantly, this is, this is so crazy, instantly Saul recognizes that it's Jesus, submits to him in a way that suggests that he has a respect or has an understanding that there's a, there's a difference between these two people. Instantly, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks? As in, you're pressing against the power of the gospel right now, Saul. You may be bound in your will, but right now you are undergoing the power of the gospel. And in a minute, in an instant, your life is going to change if you will believe. Three things about this moment. It took a personal revelation and intervention from Jesus to get Saul's attention. Again, Saul was not searching for a church. He wasn't looking around for religion. He was literally hell-bent against the church, and Jesus gets his attention. 
So it takes a personal revelation and intervention to get somebody's attention out of their sinful, out of their sinful will, out of the bondage that they're in. It takes the mighty work of Jesus Christ to save somebody. I can't do it, you can't do it, but the power of the gospel, of course, being used through us and in us, the words that we preach, the gospel that we declare, that is the only hope there is for anybody. That's how you and I got saved. We didn't get saved because we wanted to, because we were looking for something. We got saved because Jesus Christ himself intervened in our life through a gospel message, through a song, through something, through somebody. But this story strips away all the extra elements and says it's just Jesus and Paul, Jesus and me, Jesus and you. Second thing, only the light of heaven can illuminate the darkness of the human heart. Only says the light from heaven shined and that was what got him on his knees. You and I are in darkness. We are condemned. We are trapped. All the analogy, all the language that you want to use there, it takes the light of heaven to illuminate our darkness. Another thing, only with God's conviction did Saul go from passionate about sin to repentant over sin. Because we know what happens, don't we? I mean, he's ready to kill Christians and at the end of this chapter, he's in church praising God. Moving around from city to city preaching the gospel. So I know I'm making a big deal about our will being bound by sin, but I also want to make a big deal about what God can do with his gospel. And if you're saved tonight, you know what he can do, but I hope this maybe makes it even more powerful to you what was done. Because with God's conviction, Saul goes from being passionate about sin to repentant over sin. That's the power of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul would write this, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, as in there's no, there, there's no you know, we're not still stumbling, we're not still bound a little bit, we are completely free with no guilt, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, our, our world today is, is all about, you know, exposing people that don't line up with its ideas and its doctrines and its, you know, quite frankly, a lot of demonic stuff. Our world today is trying to, to, to say, hey, if, you don't, if, you don't, if you're not like me, then we'll just get rid of you. Worldly grief kills people condemns people but thank god the church is about redemption culture godly grief godly sorrow brings repentance that brings us to life that gives us a second chance look at how this story plays out trembling and astonished he said lord what do you want me to do isn't that amazing we had saul could not, would not do anything but kill, but, but, but hate Christians and kill Christians. And now he's like a child saying, Father, I'm not, I, I gotta, I'm all, I'm dependent on you. His will was bound to sin, but now it's tied to God. What do you want me to do? He says, the Lord said to rise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open and he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and he said to the Lord, uh, and, and he, to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Maybe you've heard about him. <laughs> he's praying, uh, for behold, he's praying. And Ananias is thinking, are you sure he's praying? And in the vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and put his hands on and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. 
Ananias, I love when people tell God stuff that God doesn't know or they think God doesn't know. Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And God says, I didn't know that. Wow. 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Don't ever go to God and say, God, so-and-so has authority to do anything they want to do. God's thinking, really? You think that that's how it works? But Ananias is worried. Of course, we would be too. But the Lord said to him, he says, Ananias, I'm not even going to correct you for your really bankrupt ideas right now. I just want you to listen to me. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Hey, Ananias, I've picked him to lead the entire movement that you're a part of. And I was thinking, what? I don't know if this is how things went down, but I like to think about it this way, and maybe I think it's okay that we imagine it this way. The church showed potential to go beyond barriers, but it lacked someone who was truly a leader. Meanwhile, Judaism and its opponent, opposition movement had a leader, a bold, fearless, tenacious leader, Saul. Saul was able to convince Rome to launch persecution. He proved his merit by leading to Stephen's death and putting so much fear in the crowds that riots didn't even break out. They just bowed in line. I wonder what the scene was like in heaven as Stephen made his way down the street of gold to the throne of God. I wonder as Stephen met Jesus, and I'm sure that Stephen's last words were fresh on Jesus' mind. Remember Stephen said, Father, don't hold this against them. Saul's right there throwing rocks. Father, forgive this man. I wonder if Stephen and Jesus talked about that moment. I wonder if Jesus asked Stephen, were you serious about that prayer that you just prayed? I mean, I was just reading it and you showed up. I'm sure Stephen said, well, of course. I I want you to save people. I want you to forgive people. And I think maybe Jesus said, I've got an idea, Stephen. We've got to do something about this onslaught of persecution. Saul is ruthless and relentless. We've got to do something about him. And I bet Stephen said, Lord, you're the only one who can do something. and You have the power to stop him. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe in that moment when Jesus and Stephen are talking, Stephen just prayed, God, forgive this man. Jesus thinking, what are we going to do about this guy? Maybe Jesus said, I don't want to stop him. How about let's recruit him? How about let's save him and let's put him in charge of the whole movement? You think that might have happened? Acts 9.15 is such a big deal. I have made him my chosen vessel to go to the world. I have hand-picked this man who was against me, who had no ability to change himself. I am going to show my ability to save anybody by picking him and saving him. The story goes that Ananias finds Saul, the scales fall off of his eyes, and Saul is in church the next day proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. People said, who could this be? How could this be? This guy's a murderer. Not anymore. He once was blind. But now, he could see. Years later, Paul would write this about his conversion. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. For though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I was, I was so blind in my sin. I was so captive by my will. But the mercy of God changed everything. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
grace overflowed. Paul knew that it was the grace of God that saved and transformed his life. And it was only by God's grace that he ever had a chance. That makes sense that he would go on to write this in Romans 9. It depends not on human will or exertion, as in our wills are captive, but it depends on God who has mercy that can break down even the greatest barriers, even the barrier of the will of man. This is the power of the gospel. Acts 9 is an example of what presenting the gospel can do if we allow Jesus to take front and center. One cannot quantify how impactful this one man's conversion, Saul's road to becoming the Apostle Paul as we know him, would go on to change the world exponentially more than anybody else has in history. Isn't that incredible? Washed from his sin, filled with God's Spirit, Paul was set free, and the rest is history. That's what God can do. If you ever doubt it, read Acts 9. This guy did not want anything to do with Jesus, and he becomes the leader of the church of Jesus in a series of a couple of verses. It's what God can do. Aren't you glad that his light has shined into our darkness? Aren't you glad that his gospel sets you free and it can set anybody free? It's incredible, isn't it? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for setting us free. Lord, my, my sin, I, I'm still, I still deal the, with the residual effects of my sin and my, the bondage to sin. I want to do what is against you and opposite of your will, and I want to go in the wrong direction. And sometimes I sit down like a stubborn child and expect you to carry me. And the amazing thing is you do. You grab me by the hand, you pick me up, and you literally take me because I don't want to go on my own. But thank God for your grace that overflows for me and anybody else that's listening tonight. Our wills say no, but you say yes. And if we, in the moment of conviction, in the moment of illumination, in the moment of meeting Jesus, if we will surrender, if we will believe, if we will put our faith in him, our lives can change in an instant. We go from sinful to saved. We go from against to for. We go from opponent to advocate. God, thank you for the story of Paul that reminds us what you can do and what only you can do. God, may this story go out and encourage somebody tonight that maybe has given up on a loved one and maybe wonders if there's even hope for themselves. Where your gospel is, where your light is, where your power is, there is hope. Because it's not about what we will, it's about what your mercy enables. And thanks be to God, your mercy endures and can overcome even the greatest of barriers. We ask this and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.